This audio lecture is based entirely upon the casebook Sales and Leases, a problem-based approach by Scott J. Burnham and Kristen Juris. The casebook is published by Callie E. Langdell Press and licensed Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International. That means that the authors have allowed everyone to copy and redistribute the material in any medium or format and remix, transform, and build upon the material as long as users give appropriate credit. Don't use the material for commercial purposes and redistribute contributions under the same license. Much thanks is due to the authors for writing this book and providing it to everyone for free. In furtherance of this spirit and in compliance with the original license, I also license this audio lecture as Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International. I hope you enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Contracts Lectures. This is lecture number 15, and in this lecture, we'll be talking about limitation of remedies. So, under the principle of freedom of contract, the parties to a contract may agree to expand or limit otherwise available remedies. However, the principle of freedom of contract is not without limitations. For example, an unconscionable limitation of a remedy is not enforceable. Parties may contract to expand or limit remedies otherwise available. Parties to a contract may agree to expand or limit damages. For example, the parties can agree to cap damages to the purchase price of the goods involved. Parties to a contract may agree to specify how damages will be calculated or to the liquidation of damages. For example, if a supplier fails to timely deliver a prefabricated concrete form necessary to complete construction of a bridge, the contractor and supplier can agree to liquidated damages of $500 per day of delay. Parties to a contract may agree to expand or limit warranties otherwise applicable. By limiting a warranty, you, in effect, limit a remedy. For example, a dealer selling a used car may properly disclaim any and all express and implied warranties relating to the car. Now moving to the liquidated damages clauses. Both common law and the UCC allow the parties to determine in advance what damages are payable in the event of breach, referred to as a liquidated damages clause. However, limitations apply. Under Section 2-7181, an agreement to liquidate damages must be reasonable in light of the actual harm caused by the breach that is, the liquidated damages amount proportionate to the anticipated actual damages, 
the difficulties of proof of loss. That is, are damages otherwise difficult to prove? And the inconvenience or non-feasibility of otherwise obtaining an adequate remedy. That is, would it be difficult due, for example, to the nature of the goods involved, court costs or the non-residency of a defendant to pursue other remedies? Section 2-7181 provides that a term fixing unreasonably large liquidated damages is void as a penalty. This limitation protects the doctrine of efficient breach, which allows, even encourages, a party to be able to deliberately breach an agreement which may no longer make economic sense to perform, as long as the breaching party pays actual versus punitive damages. Many courts are troubled when the liquidated damages turn out to be unreasonable in light of the actual harm caused by the breach. And deposit. Section 2-7182 governs situations where a buyer has made a deposit on goods and then breaches before delivery, and there is no liquidated damages clause in the agreement. In that situation, the seller may retain 20% of the purchase price or $500, whichever is smaller, and must return the balance of the deposit to the purchaser. However, Section 2-7183 provides that if the seller's damages under other UCC sections are greater than those provided by Section 2-7182, the seller is free to recover damages under those sections. Section 2-302 also provides that a court may refuse to enforce an unconscionable contract. Is it possible that a clause that otherwise meets the requirements of Section 2-718 may nonetheless be found to be unconscionable under Section 2-302? Comment 1 to Section 2-302 states that the test for unconscionability is, quote, whether in the light of the general commercial background, and the commercial needs of the particular trade or case. The clauses involved are so one-sided as to be unconscionable under the circumstances existing at the time of the making of the contract. The principle is one of the prevention of oppression and unfair surprise, and not of disturbance of allocation of risk because of superior bargaining power. End quote. And moving to limitation of remedies under Section 2-719. Section 2-719-1A specifically allows the parties to expand or limit remedies or limit or alter the measure of damages. However, Section 2-719 also imposes restrictions on this contractual freedom. Comment 1 states that at least minimum adequate remedies must be available under the contract. If a limitation of remedies or damages is such as to effectively deprive a party of any remedy, such limitation will not be enforced. There must be at least a fair quantum of remedy for breach available. For example, a clause in a purchase agreement for a computer limiting damages to $1 would effectively deprive the buyer of any adequate remedy. As with all contract clauses, Section 2-302 
also requires that any limitation or modification of remedies or damages not be unconscionable. Another limitation is found at Section 2-7191B, which provides that any remedies mentioned are optional unless the remedy is expressly agreed to be exclusive, in which case it is the sole remedy available. In other words, you need to clearly make a limited remedy the exclusive remedy, or it will only be one of many available. Another limitation on a party's ability to limit remedies is set forth in Section 2-7192. If an exclusive or limited remedy is provided, and the remedy fails of its essential purpose, then the buyer may resort to any remedy as provided under the UCC. In other words, the parties are not free to provide an exclusive remedy that does not work. Another limitation on the ability of the parties to limit remedies or damages by agreement is found at Section 2-7193. This provision allows consequential damages to be limited or excluded unless the limitation or exclusion is unconscionable. It goes on to say that limitation of consequential damages for injury to the person in the case of consumer goods is prima facie unconscionable, whereas the limitation of consequential damages in a commercial setting is not. Notice that Section 2-7193 allows the limitation or exclusion of consequential damages if such limitation is not unconscionable. But can you limit direct damages, incidental damages? Yes, if such limitation is consistent with Section 2-7191. Note that under Section 2-302, any limitation of direct or incidental damages is also subject to the test of unconscionability. The limitation or exclusion of consequential damages when personal injuries arise in connection with the sale of consumer goods is prima facie unconscionable. Section 1-201B11 defines consumer to mean, quote, an individual who enters into a transaction primarily for personal, family, or household purposes, end quote. Often a purchase agreement will contain a single clause which contains a limited warranty, a limitation of remedy, such as repair or replacement, and a limitation of damages. The question which has been presented to several courts is the following. If the manufacturer is unable to repair or replace the defective goods, and thus the limited remedy has failed of its essential purpose, does the separate limitation on consequential damages fail with it? Or should the limitation on damages be enforced unless it fails on its own merits? That is, if it is found to be unconscionable. The majority of jurisdictions have concluded that a limitation of remedy clause is distinct from a limitation of damages clause, even if they are commingled in a single contract provision. The limitation of remedy clause must be analyzed under Section 2-7192, and if it fails of its essential purpose, 
the buyer may then pursue any other available remedy. However, when the buyer pursues other available remedies, the second clause limiting consequential damages will be in force unless it fails the unconscionability test of Section 2-7193. A minority of jurisdictions have ruled that if a limited remedy fails of its essential purpose, all other limitations stated in connection with it, such as a limitation of damages, also fail. For example, in Cooley v. Bighorn Harvestor Systems, Inc., the manufacturer could not repair the equipment as promised, and thus the remedy failed of its essential purpose. The court found that the limitation on damages was written in the context of the limitation of remedy, and they were dependent upon each other. And because the limitation of remedy failed, the limitation on consequential damages also failed. A sub-minority of jurisdictions that strike the limited remedy also strike the limitation on damages if it is in the same paragraph, but not if it is in a separate paragraph. And that brings us to the end of this lecture. Thanks, everybody, and take care.